31, he whined, and, though on the 27th July it was inflated and quite ready for flight, the north wind blew steadily down from the pole as though to say, you are not wanted here, you are not wanted here, Herr Andrea and his friends waited patiently for three weeks, and then, as it still blew from the north, he ordered the gas to be let out and the silk bag packed for a return to the south, the captain of the Virgo said that he feared, if they stayed longer, his ship would be frozen in, the shed which they had erected on Danes Island was left standing for use another time, together with the machinery for making the gas, nine months later, on May 30th, 1897, the Svensk the ship led to the expedition by the king of Sweden landed Andrea once more at Danes Island, and once more he filled his airship with gas, this time it had been considerably increased in size, and measured 66 feet in diameter, with room for 176,000 cubic feet of gas. The globe was made of bands of silk 18 inches wide, varying in thickness according to the strains it would have to bear. It was provided with two additional valves and an arrangement called a rending flap. This flap was intended to avoid bumping, when, at the end of the voyage, the aeronauts would descend for the last time. A rope, carrying a small grapnel at one end, was at the other end attached to the flap. The moment the grapnel was thrown out and caught in the ground, the tightened rope would tear a large opening in the balloon and let out all the gas instantaneously. If care in construction had been all that was necessary to make Herr Andrea's journey a success, then our story would surely have had a happier ending. Again, as in 1896, the contrary wind delayed the start, but on July 11th it veered round to the south, and though it was by no means a settled wind, Herr Andrea decided to weigh anchor. All was ready. A hasty note to the king of Sweden was written by the leader. Farewells were spoken, and the captain leapt into his car. Strindberg. Frankel. He cried. We must be off. The next moment his two fellow travelers stood at his side. Each held a knife with which to cut loose three bags of ballast that kept the balloon from rising. It was an impressive moment. And those who stood on that lonely shore to wish Godspeed to the tiny expedition are not likely to forget the smallest detail of the scene. The ballast fell, and the ornan as the balloon was named rose a little way, being still held by three strong ropes. Near each of these a sailor stood with a knife ready to cut the rope the moment Herr Andrea gave the word. A little more delay, till the great globe swayed to a favorable puff of wind, and then Herr Andrea called, One, two, cut the ropes and the balloon rose into the air, while the quiet shores of the lonely little island echoed the hearty cheers of the company left behind. From the car of the balloon hung a long trailing rope, which it was Andrea's intention to keep always in contact with the earth for water, and by so doing control the direction of the balloon. Between the car and the balloon itself was an arrangement of three sails, which could be trimmed to the wind against the resistance of the trailing rope. The great difficulty in steering balloons has always been that since they travel at exactly the same speed as the wind, there is nothing for sails to react against, but by checking the speed of the balloon just as the speed of a ship is checked by the water this difficulty may be got over to some extent. So Herr Andrea dropped his trailing rope, and, as he left Danes Island, those who had gone to see him off watched the little bubbling weight that was left behind by the rope. Narrower and narrower it grew in the distance till it was no more than a silver line, and the vast balloon above it moved like a gray shadow on the Arctic sky. The three explorers in the car were soon beyond the reach of sight, but the crew of the Svensk suit never took their eyes from the airship till, 
sailing in a northeasterly direction at a height of about 150 feet. It disappeared behind a range of low hills. Eleven days later a message was received by carrier pigeon the fourth dispatched by Herr Andrea. It stated that on July 13th, two days after the departure, all was going well. On August 31st a floating buoy was found in the Arctic seas, and contained another message. But as it was dated July 11th it was of less interest than the first. Since then the explorer and his companions have passed from our knowledge as completely as the silver wake of his trailing rope has faded from the Arctic Sea. The efforts made to follow its mysterious path have failed for eight years, and the traveler's fate is another secret locked in these frozen regions. John Lee, footnote, Herr Frankel had taken the place of Dr. Erkholm, who had retired from the enterprise. A strong motive, Robert Louis Stevenson tells of the Welsh blacksmith who, at the age of 25, could neither read nor write. He then heard a chapter of Robinson Crusoe read aloud. It was the scene of the wreck, and he was so impressed by the thought of what he missed by his ignorance, that he set to work that very day, and was not satisfied until he had learned to read in Welsh. His disappointment was great when he found all his pains had been thrown away, for he could only obtain an English copy of the book. Nothing daunted, he began once more and learned English, and at last had the joy and triumph of being able to read the delightful story for himself. A strong motive and a steady purpose overcome the greatest difficulties. M. H. Diamonds, a man named John O'Reilly died not long ago in a store near Tons, in the Kimberley district of South Africa. Few people, perhaps, remember or know that this man began the great diamond trade of Africa. The story is quite a romance. In 1867 the baby son of a Mrs. Jacobs found a pretty pebble near the Orange River, and brought it to his mother. She showed it to a boar, who offered to buy it. You may have it as a gift, laughed the woman, there is no value in it. The boar thought otherwise, and showed it to O'Reilly, who was then a traveling trader. He took it to Colesburg, and there cut his initials with it on the window of an inn, proving the stone to be a diamond. It was then shown to the clerk of the peace and finally it reached the colonial secretary, and was sent to the Paris exhibition, where it was sold for 500 pounds, and established the fact that diamonds could be found in the colony, but it was some years yet before people in Cape Colony at all realized the wealth of diamonds which lay scattered at their very feet. A boar, living at Dutoitspen, found a diamond sticking in the mud walls of which his house was built, and in July, 1871, a man scratched the soil near Colesburg copy with his knife, and unearthed a diamond. A town was built round it, which has grown into the modern Kimberley. So, from John O. single quote Riley single quote as first diamond of 500 pounds has grown a great trade, which last year produced diamonds valued at over 4 million pounds sterling. There is little doubt that though Cape diamonds were discovered first in 1867, they were known in Africa long ago. Stone and bronze instruments found beside skeletons in the Orange Free State show that prehistoric miners had been at work, and on an old map of 1750 the words, Here be diamonds are written across what is now Griquale and West. Sad company in the nursery. I found in a nursery corner, a pocket knife, pen, and a ball, and this was the story they told me. If I can remember it all, my beautiful handle was broken. The pocket knife mournfully cried. When Alfred forced open the cloth face to see if old time was inside, and look, said the ball with a shudder, I'm scratched in a horrible way, 
because through the drawing room window he carelessly flung me today. And worse, cried the pen in a passion, worse, worse than their troubles a lot. I've been in disgrace, since he used me, for making a terrible blot. And then they all cried in a chorus, in sorrow we're ending our days, because Master Alfred is careless, and walks in such mischievous ways. The Jumping Mouse, New Jersey, in the United States of America, still has the name given it when British explorers paid their first visit, but it does not look new at present, and we can hardly believe that a few hundred years ago savages roamed in its forests and woods, many of its old trees have been cut down, yet some remain to make a pleasant shade, and some curious wild animals are found in its woodlands, which are very plentiful, there is the dull-colored wood mouse, which often escapes notice amongst the herbage, the lively, more conspicuous white-footed species, and especially the jumping mouse, the briskest and most amusing of all. The jumping mouse is a lover of woods or copses, but it comes also to the open ground, where, probably, it is in more peril from bird foes, and it will visit garden shrubberies, and build a nest for itself in the corner of some zigzag fence. Some people who have watched this mouse have told us how active it is by night, but it may often be seen on a summer's day running home to the nest, with the pouches in its cheeks full of food, to be hoarded up or given to the young ones, it can run with great speed, as well as leap. Now and then a mother mouse may be noticed basking in the Sunday her little ones round her, generally keeping near the nest. Usually, it is only when in danger or frightened that the little creature travels along in its peculiar jumping way. It appears that wherever a jumping mouse island be it field or woodland, it takes to the thick grass or underbrush, probably because amongst these it finds the food required but in these places it is in peril from enemies coming suddenly to seize it, and the mouse has a great advantage by being able to leap, and not run through tangled grass. People have disagreed as to the distance these mice can jump, five or six feet has been stated, but that is beyond the fact. A gentleman who had a tame specimen found that on his parlor carpet it would jump about two feet, though very likely, if in danger, it would have covered a greater distance. When the sharp frosts of autumn have begun, the jumping mouse looks out for a winter retreat, it is able to dig, and so it burrows down into the earth, when it is not too hard, and scoops itself a nest, away from observation and sheltered from the cold, it curls round, head, tail, and feet together, eating occasionally from its store, till the spring days rouse it to fresh energy, JRSC float on the Dogger Bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China. Continued from page 293, chapter XII. Before the three adventurers had gone many yards, a Chinese beggar sidled up to Charlie and begged his honorable brother to bestow a gift upon the degraded dog who addressed him. At first Charlie did not know whether the man was asking what the time was, or whether he desired to be directed to some place. So he gave a glance round, and discovering that the man was begging he shook his head gravely. The beggar departed and Charlie inwardly congratulated himself on having done very well. His self-satisfaction was, however, short-lived. He looked round to assure himself that Fred and King One were following him, and just as he did so a European lady stepped out of a shop, and her parasol, which she was in the act of opening, prodded him in the back. He turned sharply, and the lady, believing him to be a Chinaman, apologized in Chinese. Seeing that she was apologizing Charlie quite forgot his disguise, and seizing his skullcap, raised it. Of course the pigtail came off with it, 
to the amazement of the lady, who stepped quickly into her trap and drove off. Fred had the greatest difficulty in preventing himself from laughing aloud, but Ding Wan hurried forward, and taking Charlie by the arm, said in an undertone, Come into this shop, you have put your cap on crooked. The Chinese shop assistant laughed heartily as he saw Ding Wan arrange Charlie's skull cap. He saw that Charlie was a European, but, as Ping Wang said later, it was better that he should discover it than some of the street loafers, who would probably have set to work to find out the reason for an Englishman being disguised as a Chinaman. We had better go back at once, Ping Wang said, as they quitted the shop, and they walked to their temporary home without further adventure. The manager was highly amused on hearing of Charlie's mishap. But when his merriment had subsided he gave the brothers a few words of advice. You will have to be very careful indeed when you get away from the treaty ports, he said earnestly. For if people discovered you in Chinese attire, they would think that you were disguised for some evil purpose. Of course, there are some missionaries who wear Chinese dress. But the people know them, and understand their reasons. But you, not being missionaries, would naturally be regarded with great suspicion and would probably be punished severely perhaps executed. I will remember what you have said, Fred answered, and I am very much obliged to you, and so am I Charlie declared. My brother and I will be very careful after today. The conversation was now changed to home affairs, for the manager, being a thoroughbred Englishman, was anxious to hear the latest news of London. Soon after lunch they went aboard the Canton, which they found to be a small and pokey vessel. The saloon placed at their disposal was very similar to the after-saloons which Charlie and Ping had seen in the North Sea steam trawlers, that is to say, the banks were around the table. The trip to Tianjin occupied several days, and all on board, except the skipper and his mate, being Chinamen, Charlie and Fred were compelled to speak very little, and then only in an undertone, for fear that they should be overheard. However, they managed to enjoy themselves as Ping Wang taught them several exciting Chinese games. In which direction do you intend to travel when we reach Tianjin? The skipper of the canton asked Ping Wang. Shortly after they had passed Taku, up the P.E.I. Ho, Ping Wang answered, By the by, I suppose you know several boatmen who work up the river? I have a slight acquaintance with a score or so of them, and if you wish to get a passage on one of their boats I dare say that I can manage to choose a fairly honest man. That is just what I do want. Of course it can never do to let him know that my friends are Englishmen. He might refuse to take them. He would take them readily enough, but he would demand an absurdly high price for it, and, possibly, when you reached your destination, he would make known that they were foreigners. That is highly probable, Ping Wang admitted. I am afraid that someone on board is certain to discover that our friends are not Chinamen. Pretend that they are both ill, and that they must on no account be disturbed then they will be able to escape being spoken to. That is a very good idea, Ping Wang declared, but when they arrived at Tianjin, and he and the skipper started bargaining with a small cargo boat owner for passages, it was found that the idea was not so good as he expected. I will not take them, the boatman declared, when he heard that two of his proposed passengers were invalids. They will die on my boat, and then their spirits will haunt me. Neither Ping Wang nor the skipper of the canton had thought of this objection a very natural one from a Chinese point of view. But these men will not die, the skipper declared, hurriedly. It is only bad eyes that they are suffering from. They have come from Hong Kong with Ping Wang, and, if they are not worried, 
they will soon be well again. For a moment the Chinese boatman was silent. I will take them, he said. At length, if my honorable brother, Ping Wang, will promise that if they become very ill he will throw them overboard, so that they shall not die in my boat. I promise, Ping Wang said, and he had no qualms about making that vow, for Fred and Charlie were in splendid health, and it was very unlikely that they would become seriously ill during the two days' journey upriver. It seems to me, Charlie said, when he heard of the arrangement that had been made, that I shall never make a really enjoyable trip on water. My first voyage I made as a cook, and had a bullying skipper to worry me. Then I escaped to what I thought was a mission ship, but it turned out to be a rascally coper. On the canton I had to pretend that I was a Chinaman, and now, if I get ill, I'm to be thrown overboard. You have told the boatman that my brother and I are suffering from bad eyes, Fred remarked to Ping Wong, but he will see at a glance that there is nothing the matter with them. I have thought of that, Ping Wong answered, and have bought a pair of Chinese goggles for each of you. I wonder that I didn't think of them when we were at Hong Kong, for they will make your disguise much more complete. At present your eyes do not look at all like Chinamen's. Charles and Fred at once put on the goggles which Ping Wong gave them, and the skipper declared that now, if they did not speak aloud, no one would guess that they were not Chinamen. We ought to go at once, said Ping Wong, and, after shaking hands with the skipper, the three travelers quitted the canton, and made their way towards the boat. In less than five minutes the three travelers reached the spot where it was moored. It was a long, heavy boat. The cargo was packed in the middle of the boat, and near the stern was a roughly made awning, composed of mats and dirty-looking cloth, which had been erected for the comfort of Ping Wang's invalids. Charlie and Fred walked aboard in silence, and assumed invalids' airs with so much success that the boatman, believing them to be seriously ill, said to Ping Wang, as he passed him, Honorable brother, do not forget the promise which you made to your worthless servant that if the honorable lords with sore eyes get worse you will throw them into the river. Have I not promised you? Ping Wang asked. Haughtily, do you doubt my word? The boatman protested, humbly, that Ping Wang's word could not possibly be doubted by his disreputable servant, adding, moreover, that he lived simply to obey him. The wooden seats under the awning were hard and uncomfortable, and Charlie, Fred, and Ping Wang were soon tired of sitting there, especially as they dared not talk, for fear of being overheard. Once Ping Wang caught the boatman peeping under the awning, he seized him quickly, and demanded his reason for prying on the sick travelers. Noble brother, the boatman answered, trembling with fear, I wanted to see if they were dying. They are getting better, Ping Wang declared. It is a good thing for you that they are not dying, for their father is as rich as a mandarin, and if I had to throw them overboard he would certainly have you executed. Ping Wang's romancing had the desired effect. The boatman shook with fear, and, kowtowing before Ping Wang, groaned aloud, I shall be glad if they will die in my boat, he declared, without the slightest intention of intimating that he hoped that Charlie and Fred would die. He was too excited to speak calmly, for, though he dreaded the spirits, he had a greater fear of mandarins. From that minute Charlie, Fred, and Ping Wang were left and disturbed. The boatmen's for assistance shunned the awning, as if it sheltered lepers and were apparently greatly relieved when an opportunity occurred for them to go ashore and tow the boat. The boatman remained on board, but, except when Ping Wang addressed him, kept at a respectful distance from the passengers, continued on page 308. 
What Katie heard? How very annoying. It is really too bad to have this noisy creature foisted on us just now. Katie stood on the doorstep of her aunt's house in a very stiff, pink frock. Her cheeks were a red and rosy, for it was a warm summer day, and her feelings were just those of any little girl who is paying her first real visit to an aunt in the country. The speakers were Katie's two cousins, Janet and Claire, and the words came very clearly through the curtains and open windows. As Katie stood there, wondering whether the bell had really rung, or whether she had better give it another tug, she saw her own reflection in the shining bell handle, and it had gone crimson all at once. Poor Katie. Mother had told her she would be expected, and this was what her cousins thought about her. Was it not a dreadful state of affairs for a small girl at the beginning of her first visit? Katie shut her mouth tight, and clenched her small, hot hands, in a desperate effort to look just ordinary. It was very hard to be brave. She would have liked to run away, but she knew that would be cowardly. Her cheeks kept growing hotter and hotter. It was mean. She had always heard to listen to things that were not intended for one. Plainly, there was only one course, to go right on, and not let anybody know that she had overheard those dreadful, unkind words. The waiting and the silence was almost too much. The girls' voices died away in the room, a bee was buzzing in a foxglove bell at her elbow, and some cows went quietly up the lane past the green garden gate. Then, all at once, the door flew open, and tall Janet and fair-haired Claire stood before her. You dear child, have you come all alone? How tired she looks. Claire, Katie, Katie, haven't you got a kiss for your own Claire? There was quite a chorus of greetings as they ushered puzzled Katie into a bright room where her invalid aunt, wrapped in a shawl, and rather pale, lay on a couch, holding out both hands to welcome the visitor. Oh, dear, thought Katie, I don't know how they can pretend to be so kind. She stood there in the midst of them all awkward and silent, an honest-hearted little girl, obliged to act a most untruthful part, try as she might, her kisses were but cold ones, she would have liked to push them away, and to cry out, you don't love me, really, you said I was a noisy creature, let me go home, it was worse when her kind, suffering and took her in her arms, and said she was so, so glad to have her to stay, Katie felt such a mean, horrid little girl, she did not know which way to look or where to hide her hot cheeks. In the middle of the window, a large green parrot was clawing at her perch. This is Polly, said Janet, passing a hand under the great creature's wing. The people next door are going away, and they have sent her to us till they come back. Here Polly interrupted with a long, loud screech, so that everybody had to put their hands to their ears. We rather like her, said Claire, when she had finished. But oh! She is so noisy. Come and stroke her. Katie. So that was the noisy creature. Katie's troubles all vanished at a stroke, and before Claire and Janet could ask what was the matter, she was sobbing out all about the silly mistake to her kind aunt. One good turn deserves another. Tim Sullivan started from the town with a heavy heart, but as he left the smoke and noise behind him, the pleasant sunshine and fresh autumn breeze soon began to work a change in his spirits. It was good to see green fields again, and he wished he could walk on and on, and never return to the town life he disliked so much. After all, what was to prevent him? His uncle had been reproaching him that very morning for his idleness at school, and had told him he would never be worth anything in the office. It is high time you were beginning to be of some use, 
he had said, I did not bargain to keep you for nothing when I took you in on your father's death, and poor Tim knew it was hard on his uncle to have this addition to his large family, he really did try to get on at school, but it was no good, he could not learn, and the harder he tried the more stupid he seemed to grow, before the death of his parents, when he lived such a happy life on a little farm in Ireland, it was not so noticeable that he was not quite like other boys, lessons were not held of much account there, and no boy of his age could have been more useful than Tim in all farm, field, or garden work, so that it was a new experience for the poor boy to be taunted with his uselessness and stupidity, and it caused him great unhappiness, as he trudged along, a familiar grunt suddenly made him feel he must be in old Ireland again, he looked round and saw a pig rooting in the ditch by the side of the road, has he got astray, he asked a man who was breaking stones close by, likely enough, was the answer, farmer snail's man was driving home pigs from market yesterday, and I thought as he passed he was getting a bit old for work and pigs are uncommon difficult to drive to, not if you know the right way to set about it, said Tim, instead of hollowing and shouting and beating it with a stick, you should just stoop down and catch the eye of the crater, and sure he will go the way you want, the man grinned, you're from the old country no need to tell me that, my broth of a boy, Tim nodded, with an answering twinkle in his eye, if you tell me where farmer snail lives, I will drive this pig there, he said, the directions were given, Tim soon had the pig before him, and all his troubles were forgotten in an occupation which reminded him of old times, perhaps doing the farmer and the pig a good turn will bring me something good, he thought, there was a tremendous grunting in the farmyard when the wanderer rejoined his companions, farmer snail came out, followed by his wife, to see what was causing such a commotion, well, you are a smart boy, the farmer said, you must come in and rest and have some tea, for pig driving is a tiring business, it's not tired I am, sir, I only wish I had a chance to drive pigs every day, you will not be wanting a boy to help on your farm, will you, sir, why, my lad, you don't look cut out for hard work, the farmer said, for Tim's stunted growth, and the large head, out of proportion to his small body, made him look less strong than other boys, I can work hard with my hands, he said, it is only lessons and figures which bother me, well, I am afraid I have no verdict here for you, my lad, besides, I could not take a boy I knew nothing about, even if he was kind enough to bring home my pig, Tim's face fell, he looked bitterly disappointed, have you no people of your own, my dear, asked Mrs. Snail, and Tim thought she had the kindest face he had ever seen, now, Mrs. You go in and get you ready for this little chap, her husband said, he wanted to have her out of the way, for he knew how soft-hearted his wife was, she never could turn away a tramp or a beggar from her door, she gave food and shelter to all stray dogs and cats, and a blackbird in a cage outside the window bore witness to her kind nature, she had rescued a nest full of fledglings from some cruel boys and had tried to bring them up by hand, only one survived and although she had set it free when it was old enough to take care of itself, it often flew back to its old home, the door of which was always left open, while they were having tea, Mrs. Snail drew from the boy all his sad little story, and of course she wanted the farmer to give him a home, Wilford is getting old, and needs some help in attending to the animals, she said, I had a lot to do with cattle on father's farm, Tim broke in eagerly, 
and I know all there is to know about pigs, though I am no scholar. The farmer smiled. I suppose I shall have to give you a chance, Sonny, as the missus has set her heart on it. But I must see this uncle of yours. Perhaps he may object. He will be glad to get rid of me, Tim said. His words proved true. And before a week had passed Tim was settled in his new home. He worked with a will, and liked his work, because he felt he was at last of some use in the world instead of being a burden to others. And the pig that had led him to such a happy position received such a special share of attention that he grew fatter and bigger than any of his fellows. One good turn deserves another. Tim would think, the pig got me this job, and sure and I am paying him back for it. The fox's serenade, little goose, I love thee, little goose. All the stars are flinging bright blue beams above me, as I'm sweetly singing how I dearly love thee. Here I'm waiting, is it any use, little goose? More than words can tell I love thee dearly, more than tongue can tell or very nearly, little goose, I love thee, little goose, the shadows cling together, the moonbeams give sweet kisses, how I wonder whether we shall know such blisses, to my mother you I'll introduce, little goose, she will greet you with a smile so cheery, like a mother kind or very nearly, little goose, I love thee, little goose, hark, the farmer's coming with his ugly rifle, so I must be roaming for I dare not trifle, and the watchdog he will now lose, little goose, some night in the future I'll come really, make you all my own or very nearly, the cow tree, one of the very remarkable trees of South America a region notable for its natural history wonders is that called the cow tree, it receives that name, not because in its shape it is at all like a cow, but because, at certain seasons, it yields an abundant supply of milk, it grows in hilly districts, usually where very little moisture is to be had for several months of the year. This makes it more singular that a plentiful flow of milky fluid will come from the trunk, on boring into it deeply. Though the branches look dried, it is believed that most milk is got when the tree is tapped about sunrise, or when the moon is nearly full. If the milk is put aside for a time, a thick cake forms upon it, under which is a clear liquid, some of it kept in a bottle, well corked up was once preserved for several months. The cork, on being extracted, came out with a loud report, followed by a bluish smoke. The milk was a little acid, but not disagreeable to taste. A grove of cow trees is a grand sight, for the species grows to a great height, and the trunk may be fifty or more feet without a branch. Near the top the branches cluster together, displaying tough and ribbed leaves. Many of these leaves are ten or twelve inches long. The tree bears fruits of moderate size, each containing one or two nuts, which are said to have the flavor of strawberries and cream, from the bark of the tea.